I heard a story one time about a farmer whose calf unexpectedly, whose cow unexpectedly had twin calves. And he and his wife were pulling the calves. He saw that he was going to have a bonus. And he felt a, a religious impulse. And he said, Honey, let's give one of these calves to the Lord. And she says, Well, I think that's a marvelous idea. Which one will be the Lord's? He said, Well, we will, uh, don't need to decide that now. We will grow them up and, and, uh, uh, feed them. And when it comes time to sell, we'll sell them both and we'll keep the proceeds of one for ourselves and give the proceeds of the other to the Lord. So for a couple of months, they, uh, fed the cows in one day. He came into the house with a very dejected look on his face. She said, honey, what's happened? He said, the Lord's calf died. <laughs> she said, but I thought you hadn't decided which one was the Lord's calf. He said, oh, no, no, no. I, all along, I thought that the brown one was the Lord's calf. That's always the way I thought of it. And that's the one that died. But we laugh at this farmer, and yet I think that we really do the, the same sort of thing. When we have a bonus, we have a little bit extra, we're more than happy to give to the Lord's work. And yet when inflation hits or when we have our heart set in a new suit or whatever, why it's the Lord's calf that dies. It's there that we cut corners. Why is it? Well, the answer is really quite obvious, so it's disturbing to think about. We get entangled with a love of money. This morning we want to look at Jesus' teaching on this subject in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 34. His main concern in the chapter and main instruction is that we become people whose hearts are geared and driven most of all towards knowing God and serving Him. Or as He says in words with which we're very familiar, seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness. But there's a problem. There's something that does entangle us and trip us up and divert our attention quite frequently, and that's the love of money. So he addresses that problem in this chapter. Really, there are two kinds of materialism that he addresses. First of all, the tendency to become accumulative and to make our kingdom, our treasure, the earthly possessions, verses 19 to 24, the second kind of materialism he addresses is that of verses 25 to 34, namely the kind in which we're simply diverted from more important things by concerns and worries and anxieties over our daily needs. Materialism is not really determined or judged by how much you have or don't have, but rather by the value you attach to what you have how much you prize those things, how much you cling on to the possessions that you have, to your luxuries, your securities, your things, particularly in the face of the needs of others. And it's this problem that he addresses. He says in verses 19 and 20, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. Now, what are these treasures? The earthly treasures, the heavenly treasures he talks about? Well, certainly they have to do with our material possessions. 
because he goes on and talks about the love of money. And yet I think they have to do, they, they include more than simply that. Because in verses 1 to 18, we look, that we looked at last week, Jesus there talked about those who practice their religion to get rewards from men. And these rewards we get from men, the non-material uh, ones, are also earthly kinds of treasures. The power, the status, the prestige that we strive for. And the heavenly treasures, not only are what we do with our money, but, but how we practice our religion. Jesus says, practice your prayer, your fasting, your giving of alms, not to be seen by men, but to be seen by God, so you'll be rewarded by Him. By doing these things with a heart for God, concerned for Him, and we are laying up treasures in heaven. The problem with earthly treasures, he said, is that they are will not last and they're insecure. They won't last because the moth and the rust consume. They eat them up. I had an acquaintance in college who was, uh, had, uh, was not really very popular. She wasn't disliked, I don't think, but she wasn't particularly liked by anybody, didn't have many friends. And I was surprised when I found out that she had been an Olympic gold medalist when she was 16. She had uh, been a, a superb swimmer and, as I recall, had won two gold medals, a silver and a bronze. But now at age 20, she was a has-been. And I thought, what a pity if she entered the, uh, pursued the, the goal of, of her Olympic uh, rewards primarily to gain status from people to get that recognition, to feel good about herself because others would look and say, you've really accomplished something. Because I'm sure that it lasted. I mean, it, it worked for a while. But along with that were the denial of the pleasures that normally teenagers like to pursue, staying up late, eating junk food, and, and uh, goofing off all those things. Instead, she had to give them up to undergo rigorous disciplines for her uh, athletic endeavors. And yet it all faded away. By 20, she was a has-been. Our material treasures are the same way. They're not going to last. We may be smart enough to devise ways to have them last a little longer than that. But they won't last either. Furthermore, they're insecure. We don't know when they're going to go. We don't know what the thief of inflation is going to do next year. We don't know what the thief of rising energy costs might do to our earthly treasure. We might get a vacation home in the mountains and then find that, that the rising cost of gas has made it almost impossible to drive up and afford that. And then once we get there, we can't turn on the heat because electricity has become so expensive. And we are led to insecurity if we're making earthly treasures our goal. Jesus here really lays out two alternatives. He says, don't lay up the earthly treasures because they're not going to last. They are insecure. Instead, he says, lay up the heavenly treasures because they are going to endure. No thief can get to them. No rust or corrosion can consume them. He says, we have two alternatives. And really what he's saying is that we're fools if we choose that which is temporary, insecure and passing away, not really fulfilling, in place of that which is eternal. And notice that he says, lay up treasures for yourselves. 
He's not just saying, be religious and do religious things with your money because you're supposed to be religious people. Rather, he says, it's in your own self-interest to do these things. Lay up treasures for yourselves. What a retirement program. It's one that inflation can't ever touch. Or rising energy costs. Or unexpected ill health and old age can't get to. Because we're laying up treasures for ourselves in heaven. The only problem, I think, is that we don't believe Him. We generally don't really believe that those heavenly treasures are more valuable, more permanent, more lasting than the earthly ones. Because the earthly ones are tangible. We can touch them. We can experience them. We can feel them right now and enjoy them. And I know because I have a struggle too with this. Because I want to keep my money for myself. To enjoy little extras in life. And I'm reticent at times to want to build up an eternal investment program. But Jesus says if you're wise, if you're investment-minded, if you care about yourself, then lay up for all of eternity rather than just for the passing years of this life. He says that letting ourselves be dominated by a materialistic, accumulative mindset not only hurts us for eternity, but also hurts us right now. It threatens our enjoyment of the present life. He says in verse 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God's desire is to make us whole, complete, fulfill us, make us satisfied with life. And yet if we make material pursuit, our goal, then we become consumed with it. We let it take up all of our time, all of our energy, all of our daydreaming, all of our plans, because this is what's important to us. This becomes our treasure. And yet if we make God our treasure, knowing Him, serving Him, then that's what's important. And that's what our heart is directed towards. God's desire is to make us whole. But the only way we're going to be whole is if we give Him ourselves. We make Him first in our lives. And therefore, for concern for us, He says, don't lay up treasures on earth. Don't make that uh, your pursuit. Because it will destroy you. His desire is to fill us with His love, His joy, His peace of mind, contentment, Freedom from anxiety and greed and guilt and all these things. And yet as we make material accumulation our goal in life, then we find the dissatisfaction that covetousness breeds because we never satisfy with what we have. We experience the insecurity the anxiety that building an insecure earthly treasure brings with it. We experience selfishness. It causes us to distort our values and want to choose the things that are, that are not as good. We choose the worse and neglect the better. He illustrates this by verses 22 and 23. Jesus says, The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is clear or 
healthy, single in purpose, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If, therefore, the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Now, this, these words are difficult to understand in the details, so the main point is clear enough. He says that our eye is like the lamp of the body, and where we direct our eye determines how much light we have inside of ourselves. If we direct and focus our eyes, our attention, upon material accumulation, earthly treasures, it's going to affect our personalities. It's going to fill us with darkness. But if, on the other hand, we direct our lives, our minds, our attention towards seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness, then it's going to fill us with light. We're going to be able to experience God's contentment and satisfaction. If we change his metaphor a little bit and bring it up to date, it's the eye is kind of like a light bulb. And if it's if you're directing it in the right place, it's like a light bulb that's clear. You turn it on, it'll fill your whole body full of light. And it will it will give you it will put things in perspective, give you proper focus, enable you to to put together life in the way that God wants you to. But if your eye is misdirected, then that light bulb is like a light bulb that a a child has painted over with his uh, uh, black paint. And though a little light seeps out, it's not much. And Jesus says, if that light which is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. In other words, if you think that you have light, because sure, you make God a part of your life, he's, he's a consideration for you, and therefore you think, of course I have light, I have God's light. How pathetic if you're fooling yourself and think that darkness that's, that's a result of the obscurity of your focus is really light. How great is that darkness? Well, at this point, we want to ask the question, can I do both? Can I lay up treasures on earth and also treasures in heaven? Can I pursue the American dream of material bliss and comfort and at the same time serve God? That's what we want. And yet Jesus answers with a very uncomfortable answer for us in verse 24. He says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is an Aramaic word for wealth or riches. But you can't serve both. The problem is, Divided attention, divided loyalties. Harold Mills to, uh, told us recently that, that in his job uh, at Hewlett Packard, he was switched uh, bosses, but he was having a problem because both bosses still had control over him. And the old boss is saying, look, you got to finish all these projects before the new boss gets your time. And the new boss says, I don't care about him, you got to work on this new work. And he said he's having a conflict, so he didn't know who to serve. And it's the same way with God and mammon. If they're both giving us directions, we don't know who to serve. We can't, we can't serve them both. Let me ask you a question. How do you respond when a financial need is presented at church here? I respond in one of three ways. A good way, so-so way, and then a really pitiful way. Sometimes I respond in a good way. I say, Lord, I want to help out. I want to help meet that need. 
no matter what the cost to me. And then there's a so-so way. Lord, I hope somebody meets that need, no matter what the cost to them. <laughs> and then there's the pitiful one, and it's one that I confess that I have at times, and that's resentment. Sometimes I get resentment when the financial needs are, are presented. Because I think, well, I was just getting to a place where I was getting a little bit comfortable, had a little bit extra, and I had some nice plans of, you know, we could go out to eat a few extra times and and uh, buy a few things that we don't really need but would be fun to have. And Then here's this need presented. And how can I, in good conscience, you know, I, I can go ahead and buy the things I want anyway, but I'll feel bad. And I get resentful. And part of it, I think, is because I'm close enough to the situation to know what it means. When the church finances lag behind, I know what it, mean, what it was meaning this last fall when we're not meeting our missionary obligations on time. And the whites had to live on $300 one month because our paycheck didn't come into them, our support check. And the uh, Huckstras were struggling through how can we live on eight or $900 a month and yet not get the support check, which makes up a lot of that. How can we pay our bills and buy gas for visitation? I know the Pavleks were, who live on about the same amount were struggling this last December and they didn't get, get the support check from us. How can we maintain ourselves in the mission field if, if we're not going to be supported? And when I hear that and I realize those things, I confess that at times I get resentful. I know the reason. The reason is because I'm trying to serve two masters. Mammon shouts its commands. Newman, don't worry about those people. Somebody else will take care of them. You worry about yourself. Use your money on yourself, not on others. And God is giving his command. He says, Steve, your needs are met. Take care of the needs of somebody else. And I can't do both. And that's where the resentment comes in. How I wish many times that God would simply give us uh, a quota. He'd say, give $100 a month or 500 whatever it is, just a, a certain figure. And then all of the extra. I could work hard. I could take on extra jobs. I could do something so that so that I could take all the extra and spend it on myself without thought of these other needs. Or maybe if you just give me a percentage, just give 10% and don't worry about the rest. The rest is yours. Just to, to do anything you want with, then I could be comfortable. I could pursue God and mammon because I could say, okay, God, I'll give you my 10% or whatever it is. Just like the government takes taxes, I'll give that and, I, and the rest of it I don't have to worry about. I can do whatever I want. But we do get resentful at times when the needs are presented because we want to have both. We want to serve both. Jesus says you can't serve God and mammon. You have to choose. Now, he doesn't tell us here you all have to live in poverty level or any particular kind of, uh, of lifestyle. We can't judge one another and say, your car is bigger than mine, therefore you're a materialist and I'm not. But he does say you can't serve both. And his appeal to us is for our own good. He says it's to your advantage to serve God, to seek first his kingdom, because that's going to bring you eternal reward. Furthermore, that's going to put your heart in the right place. As your treasure becomes God rather than your earthly kingdom. Well, some of us at this point are probably thinking, yes, but I'm not 
making material accumulation my goal, why I'm just scraping by to make, meet the monthly bills. Well, Jesus says in verses 25 to 34 that there's a second kind of materialism that also is, is wrong and it hurts us. It distracts us from the important things. It's the kind he mentions in verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for, for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. For this reason. For what reason? Because you cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore, don't be anxious. Don't worry about the material needs, even if your paycheck doesn't come in. Don't worry about it because life is more than these things. Now, the King James translates here, take no thought for your life. And in King James' time, take no thought meant what be, uh, don't be anxious means today. So today, take no thought's a little misleading. He's not saying don't plan for the future. He's not saying it's wrong to and sinful to have insurance or, or savings account or retirement plan. The Bible, uh, in the book of Proverbs, commends the ant to us as an example of one who who uh, thinks about the future and lays up. But what he's saying is don't be anxious. Don't let the concerns consume all of your mental energy. So you're always w- worrying. How am I going to meet my, meet my obligations? How am I going to pay bills? Where is the money going to come from? The word for be anxious comes from the, the Greek word, comes from a word that means divide. And being anxious really means we have a divided mind. We can't single-heartedly give ourselves to God and pursue knowing and serving Him. And we're all consumed with, with worries about material things. And so he tells us in this section three reasons why we shouldn't be anxious. The first one in verse 25, the end, the last line. Is not life more than food and the body than clothing? In other words, even if you have those things, that's not what makes life. Now, we probably all know people who have many things who are unhappy. The, I've met many people in my life, and many have been unhappy. But I think, in thinking over the people I've met, I think the most unhappy person I've ever met was a man who was about 26 or 28. He had inherited $3 million from his father, was making $200,000 a year as a stockbroker, and that was 10 years ago and it's worth about 400000 in today's currency. And yet he was miserable. Now some of us who don't make quite so much, and I assume most of us don't make quite that much, we can fool ourselves and think, well, if I just had a little more, then I'd be happy. Then I'd be fulfilled. If I could just get the bigger house, the, the larger salary, the nicer car, the, the better vacation, then I could be happy. And so we fool ourselves and work hard towards a goal. But here's a, a good example for me because he exemplified one who had all that stuff and he knew that didn't bring, bring fulfillment and he was miserable as a result. Jesus says life is more than food and clothing. And to let yourself be consumed by worries about these things is, is detrimental to you because it overvalues these things. It makes you think that these things are really where it's at. We get so superficial at times in our uh, pursuit. We don't we don't think and analyze what we're doing with our lives. 
I think one thing that's, that's, uh, I always think about in, in our superficiality is, is, uh, at times when we worry about us getting a suntan and make getting a suntan a top goal for the summer months, as many do. You look upon the, the number of hours they lay by the pool or in the beach and the, uh, all the money they consume with the oils and the lotions they spread all over their bodies to make sure it's even. And yet, it, it doesn't really make them happier to have the suntan. And it disappears very quickly and the winter comes on. And yet, we, we all do the same sort of thing. By letting our lives be taken up, be taken up with things which really aren't that important. Squeezing out concerns for the kingdom of God. The second reason that Jesus gives why being anxious is wrong and harmful to us, verse 27, he says it's ineffective. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his life's span? Uh, King James here translates to, to his stature, but it makes the uh, Christ's question rather ludicrous. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single 18 inches to his height? That's what a cubit is. Rather, it makes perfect sense. Which of you, in the modern translations, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single step to the length of his life? You can't. The worry, the anxiety is ineffective. It doesn't even get you anywhere if you do it. And thirdly, he says, it's unnecessary. Verse 26, Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Now, he's, he's not saying that we should just uh, fly around and stop uh, sowing and reaping and gathering into barns. The birds don't just sit on the branches and wait for the seeds to pop up in the air and for the wind to blow them into their beaks. But his point is, though they don't work like we do, they don't fret, nevertheless, God takes care of them. And if God takes care of them, the birds who are temporary creatures, they don't live eternally like us. How much more will He take care of us, we who are created in the image of God? Therefore, worry is unnecessary. Verse 28, And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so arrays the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more do so for you, O men of little faith? Do not be anxious then, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink or with what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Again, an argument from the lesser to the greater. If God carries for weeds, the lilies of the fields were just weeds. If He cares for weeds that have a dandelion, has a nice flower on it, but it's just there for a couple of weeks and then it's gone, how much more is He going to care for you and me? Those for whom Christ died. Those who were created in God's image. He says it's unnecessary to worry when we place ourselves into God's care. But there is one provision, he says, verse 33, but seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. 
God's kingdom is His rule. As we seek His kingdom and we seek to place ourselves under His rule, under His lordship, we seek to bring every area of life under His control. And as we seek His kingdom, then we seek to extend it beyond ourselves to others. And we have a desire to reach out to fellow believers and help them grow in the faith that they might experience God's lordship more progressively, more completely. And we have a desire to seek out, to to reach out to those who don't know God, bring them into God's kingdom. And His righteousness is His character. And as we're seeking His righteousness and we're seeking to reflect His character in all that we do, all that we say, all that we think, in our attitudes, in our actions, our reactions, responses to, to people. We're seeking to reflect Him. And Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. Make this a top priority in your life. Don't just give God a little bit of time here or there. Work in time for your spiritual life when there aren't any good TV shows on. Rather make it a top priority. Let me ask you another question. What is your consuming passion today? What thing above all else do you want to get accomplished today? Finally get the laundry done. You get that business deal consummated to get a good afternoon in on the slopes or to glorify God. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. We might do these other things. But if we are what He asks us to be here for our own good, then we will put God first. It's not that we don't do earthly things. We do and we must. But we put Him above them all. Think about what it would be like if you were in the middle management in some company and you spent all of your working days thinking about where you're going to go to lunch that day, what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear to work the next day, what pens and pencils you would choose to use that day, and what scratch pads you would, you would employ. Well, I'm sure you all recognize that you would get fired very quickly because you would be letting menial considerations consume your time. There are things that we all have to think about but you'd be letting them predominate in your thinking and distract you from the more important considerations of work. And yet, don't we do the same sort of thing with God? We let all these menial considerations distract us and take us away from the more important. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Don't let the cares of this world and of this life take you away and consume all of your time and dreams and mental energy and and concern. Then in verse 34, he adds one final thought. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. In other words, don't compound foolishness with foolishness by not only letting the cares of today dominate you. But don't take on the additional cares of tomorrow. Now again, he's not saying don't plan for the future. 
He's saying don't let the worries about all these things that might be in the future dominate you now. Worries about, well, what are we going to do if, if Russia does invade Iran and the gas supply is cut off? What am I going to do? But don't let that dominate you, all the ifs. What happens if this thing doesn't work out or I have trouble in this relationship six months from now? Because you have enough to be concerned about. Don't let these things distract you from the important considerations of the kingdom of God. Jesus says, seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness. And all these other considerations will be taken care of. God will care for you. Don't let the love of money squeeze Him out of your life. Be wise. Be smart. Be good investors. And lay up for yourselves eternal treasures. They're going to last forever. And furthermore, make the most of life right now by putting your heart in the right place. And your heart will be in the right place if your treasure is in the right place. If the things you highly value are God, your relationship with Him, your ministry, your service to Him, then that's where your heart's going to be. But if what you're treasuring are all the earthly possessions you have, and you let those concerns dominate you, then that's where your heart's going to be. You're going to hurt yourself. And furthermore, don't be mammon-worshipping materialists by just letting the worries of physical needs dominate your life. And trust yourselves to God no matter what your situation. He's going to care for you. He'll take care of you. Let's pray. Father, it's difficult for us to look at a passage like this. We do want to serve God and mammon. We want to have our earthly kingdom be unhindered in our pursuit of all the little gadgets and possessions and luxuries and entertainments and enjoyments that we want in this life. Lord, we confess that we're all double-hearted in this way to, to one degree or another. And we ask you to help us to see things in the right perspective and to make you our priority and to seek first you and your kingdom, your righteousness, and not let a love of money or concern over material things squeeze out the kingdom of God from our lives. We ask for help, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.